First of all, I would like to thank Cormac and Lindsay for making me go after my daughter. It's not fair. Thanks, Bethany, for gracing us with your gifts. Come and see what God has done. That's what she sang. And come and see, these are two big words in the Gospel of John. We see them throughout. The invitation is to come and see what God has done in Christ. In fact, we're going to be looking at John 1 in a moment, but later in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, uh, we, hear, we hear the words, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And the answer is, come and see. Come and see. Take a look. So today we are going to come and see what God has done in Jesus Christ. We are finishing up our Advent series in the Gospel of John, the prologue of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the last few verses uh, uh, this morning, and we're going to see what God has done. Now, when I was growing up, I was probably like most kids uh, around Christmas time, I would really enjoy watching the Christmas presents accumulate under the tree and then trying to guess what those presents were, especially if those presents were addressed to me. I would pick up the present like most kids and you know, feel how much it weighed, look at it, uh, what's the configuration, and I would try to figure out what that was. Now, one year, a friend down the street got me a Christmas gift. We exchanged gifts, and he placed it under the tree, and I couldn't figure out what this was. It was this small little package. It was very light as I picked it up. It was about four inches by five inches, maybe. It had a kind of a larger protrusion on one end and a smaller protrusion on the other end. And for a couple of weeks, I was completely flummoxed. I couldn't figure out what this was. So I was very excited come Christmas Day to open up this gift, to unwrap it, and I discovered that it was a plastic football tee. It was the kind of contraption that you place on the ground and you put a football on the tee and then you can kick the football. So I was very excited about this gift and Christmas Day we went over to the school and we played with my new gift. So I discovered on Christmas Day what was inside. Now at Christmas time, of course, we remember that God's greatest gift to us is his son. What's inside? John unwraps the gift, so to speak, for us in our text this morning. So let's look at John chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's back up a little bit to remember how the gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John doesn't disclose the identity of the word until verse 17 in our passage, but we know, of course, that it is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the son. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was somehow both God and somehow different from God. And now we hear that the word became flesh. The word became human and dwelt among us. The word became something that he wasn't before. He wasn't human, and then he became human. And he's always human from now on. He's both God and human. Now think about this. This is God himself, and he is becoming human. Not only is he becoming human, he doesn't just show up fully formed. How does he enter the world? He enters the world as a tiny little human embryo. And he is born as a human baby. It's remarkable. The, cre the, the creator becomes the created. 
The word became flesh. And the word tabernacled among us, literally tabernacled among us. This takes us back to Israel in the wilderness. Now, when Israel was rescued from Egypt, they came out into the wilderness and the Lord instructed them to build this tabernacle, this movable tent. And then when they did so, he filled this tabernacle with his uh, visible presence so that they could understand that he was dwelling with them. And then whenever this tabernacle moved, the Lord moved with them. So, they, so he wanted them to know that he was dwelling with them. He was tabernacling with them. And now what does John say? The word, who is God himself, tabernacled among us, dwelt among us as a human. And John says that we have seen his glory. We, meaning John and the other disciples, they beheld the glory of Jesus, uh, the one who came from the Father, the one who was himself God. They saw him. And he is the unique, one and only human who perfectly embodies God and reflects God. He is deity himself in the flesh. What's inside? What's inside this great gift? John tells us he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, John doesn't use this word grace again in the Gospel of John. You have to move forward, especially into the writings of Paul, to understand what this word grace means. It means favor, especially unmerited favor. Jesus was full of God's favor. Now, the word truth, John is a big fan of this particular word. You look throughout the Gospel of John, and you see him using the word truth many times, and mostly it means honesty. Jesus speaks honestly, truthfully. You can trust what he says. He's not blowing smoke. He's telling the truth. He is full of both favor and honesty. He became flesh. He became a human. Let's think about this for a second. So C.S. Lewis writes this great book called The Screwtape Letters. Many of you have read it. And in that book, you've got uh, two devils sort of corresponding with one another. There's a senior devil and there's a junior devil. And the senior devil is writing letters to the junior, junior devil, trying to advise him how to influence a particular human away from faith in God, who they call the enemy. So that's the screw tape letters. Letters from a senior devil to a junior devil to influence a human away from faith. In one of those letters, the senior devil, who is screw tape, says and laments that we, the devils, we, ha we don't know what it's like to be human. We can't become human. We've never become human. God has an advantage. In fact, Screwtape laments, oh, the abominable advantage of the enemy. We don't really know how to get in there to do all the influence that we want because we don't know what it's like to be human. God knows what it's like to be human. Why? He became one. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look at Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. The writer of Hebrews speaking of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He became 
human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And some might say, okay, he's without sin. He doesn't know what it's like to be me because I have sin. I've been tempted to sin. I've given in to sin. He doesn't know what that's like. But think of it this way. If you are entered to run a marathon and you are tempted to give up and you give up after one mile, you have not faced the fullest temptation, have you? If you run that marathon all the way to the end, you know what it's like to face the temptation to give up mile after mile after mile. We gave up after the first mile. Jesus ran the entire marathon. He faced the fullest of temptation all the way to the end. Even when he is hanging on the cross and he is tempted to come down from the cross, which he could have done. Talk about temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to be human and to face temptation. He knows what it's like to be human better than we know what it's like to be human. We have someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So John's been writing about Jesus and telling us about Jesus, and now he writes about another John who is also telling us about Jesus. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, we've already been introduced to this John. This is John the Baptist. And we heard earlier in the prologue that John the Baptist was going to come and bear witness to the word, bear witness to the light. And now John the author tells us that John the Baptist has done precisely that. And John the Baptist has declared that this one, the word, is greater than he is, not least because the word was before him. The word was. The word always was. The word is. The, the word always will be. And the word gives. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John earlier said, we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. And now he says, we have received from his fullness. He's full of grace and truth. And now he says, we have received from his fullness. Now it's one thing to see, of course. It's another thing to receive. And John says, we have received of his fullness. But, but not only that, he says, we all have received of his fullness. We all have. So he's talking about his readers here. Earlier, he was talking about himself and the other disciples. They saw Jesus. They, they're, they're, he, John is an eyewitness to all the stuff that has happened. And now John says that we all, including his readers, including us, we have received from his fullness. We have received grace and truth. We have received him. So it's possible then to not be able to see Jesus and still to receive Jesus, to re still, still to receive from his fullness. And those of us who believe in Christ, who have given our lives to Christ, this has happened for us. We have received, we have experienced from Jesus. And what have we, what have we received? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, or probably more literally, grace instead of grace. What's he talking about here? He says, well, the law was given as a gift through Moses. Notice that the law was given. 
It's a gift. It was given to the people of Israel in the wilderness for them to know how to live up until the coming of the word. So the first grace, the first gift, the first grace is the law given to the people of Israel. The second grace is the word who comes. And what does the word do? Jesus fulfills the law, perfectly obedient to the father, ultimately and finally obedient unto death, going to the cross, dying for our sins, fulfilling the law, doing what we could not do. What does he do after that? He sends his Holy Spirit who then internalizes the law so that we can be motivated, be empowered, be revolutionized by the presence of the Spirit so that we can walk with Jesus. So what do we do? We receive grace and truth. We receive grace and truth. Jesus, the word, is honest with us. He is also favorable toward us. He is full of grace and truth. So he's not blowing smoke. You, you, you get the truth from Jesus. You don't get deceit. You don't get spin. You don't get lies. You get the truth, but you also get grace. So the word is honest about our sinful condition so that we can recognize our sinful condition and be open to his favor so that we can recognize our need for grace, recognize our need for favor. Do you see that? He's full of grace and truth. He's honest with us so that we can know about our condition. And then he is full of grace so that we can turn to him and receive his favor. So it's very interesting to look at how this works out in Jesus's interactions with people in the gospels. Sometimes he leads with grace, sometimes he leads with truth, depending on the situation, depending on the people. In John chapter eight, he is interacting with these people who are opposed to him. He's trying to communicate to them the truth. He's also trying to communicate to them grace. He tells them, you're not seeing things. You are being deceived. You are listening to lies. And he is the truth, embodies the truth, and speaks the truth. And he says this to them, to them in John chapter eight, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's grace and there's truth. The truth, you will die in your sins. Grace, if you believe in me, you will not die in your sins. You will have eternal life. You will know me forever. Grace and truth in one sentence. Or then, Think of Jesus' interaction also in John 8 with another particular individual, a woman who was caught in adultery. Famous story, John chapter 8. And uh, there were these particular individuals who were trying to trap this woman so that they could trap Jesus. They trapped her indeed. They caught her in the act of adultery. They drag her before Jesus. And they say she was caught in adultery. And Moses says we're supposed to stone someone who's, uh, someone who's adulterous. And what does Jesus say? He who is without you, throw the first stone. And you know what happened. They all sort of vanished. They all went away and they left Jesus alone with the woman. This woman who had been shamed and disgraced. And what happens then? Listen to this. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, from now on, sin no more. Grace and truth, right? Grace, neither do I condemn you. Truth, sin no more. This this life you're living, it's not good. It's hurtful. It's damaging to you. It's damaging to others. Sin no more. That's truth. He's being honest with her. Grace and truth in that interaction. In both interactions that we looked at in John chapter 8. So what does Jesus do? He diagnoses our sinful condition. What else does he do? He does something about it. He dies for it. He dies for our sinful condition. He dies for us. Grace and truth. Diagnoses our sinful condition and he dies for us. What is grace? I like this quote. Grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. The fourth Sunday of Advent, we're celebrating love. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets you. Imperfection, right? Jesus is full of grace. What does it mean then for us to receive grace? Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It requires faith to receive grace. And what is faith? Faith is receiving the gift. It's what a lot of you do at Christmas time. You receive the gifts. Here it is the greatest gift. You receive the gift. You open up your arms and you receive the gift. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Do you want grace? Do you want God's favor? Jesus is full of grace. Next question. Do you want the truth? Do you want truth? Each year, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary people, they come up with a word of the year. And they just came up with their, they came out with their word of the year for 2023. And the word of the year is determined by lookup spikes that correlate to world events. Do you know what the word of the year this year is in 2023? Authentic. That's the word of the year. Authentic. Why? People can't figure out what's authentic anymore. They can't figure out what's true and what's false. They look on the websites and they go, is this true or not? How do I know this? Well, okay, I'm just going to go to my own little echo chamber here because then I think I'm going to get all the truth. Are you getting all the truth there? No, you're getting spin. People want truth. They're hungry for truth and they don't know if they're getting it. They don't know how to get it. We live in a post-truth world. And by the way, the word post-truth was the word of the year for Oxford Dictionaries in 2016. We live in the age of the deep fake. And by the way, the word deep fake finished in third place this year for Merriam-Webster, word of the year. We live in the age of artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence would have been a contender for word of the year except for the fact that it's two words. (laughs) 
all this stuff is all around us. It's so murky. We're trying to figure out what's true and what's not true. What can you believe? What are you supposed to discard? Peter Sokolovsky is an editor at large for Merriam Webster. And when they came out with the word of the year, he says this. We see in 2023 a kind of crisis of authenticity. What we realize is that when we question authenticity, we value it even more. Can we trust whether a student wrote this paper? Can we trust whether a politician made this statement? We don't always trust what we see anymore. We sometimes don't believe our eyes or our own ears. We are now recognizing that authenticity is a performance itself. Now, that was inevitable, wasn't it, in our age, for authenticity to become a performance. If authenticity is valued, then we'll figure out how to be authentic, even if we're not authentic. If authenticity makes money on your posts, then you better make sure that you appear authentic, even if you're not authentic. Authenticity has become a performance. We are hungry for the truth. We are hungry for something that is legitimately authentic. By the way, the Merriam-Webster 2022 word of the year, gaslighting. Gaslighting. Do you want the truth? And at this point, I feel the urge to channel Tom Cruise from a few good men. I want the truth. And I am quite sure that this is the first time in the entire history of Peninsula Bible Church that Tom Cruise has been referenced in two straight sermons because I see Dan over there. He mentioned Tom Cruise last week in connection with Mission Impossible. I mentioned him this week in connection with a few good men. I want the truth. If you want the truth, Turn to Jesus, he is full of truth. And Jesus, later in the Gospel of John, prays to the Father and says, your word is truth. Do you want the truth? My friends, this is the truth. Whatever is going on out there, whatever you can believe, whatever you can't believe, this in my hand right here, the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation is the truth. Read it, know it, believe it. Come here every Sunday, we're preaching from it. We're trying to understand the truth, trying to communicate the truth. Read the Gospels. Jesus will not gaslight you. On the contrary, he will explain God to you. He will make God known to you. Let's look at our last verse. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God because God is spirit and he dwells, according to Paul, in unapproachable light. You cannot see God. Then again, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he do when he dwelt among us? He explained God to us. He revealed God to us. So you want to know what God is like, what do you do? 
Well, of course you read all of the scriptures, but especially you read the gospels and especially you listen to Jesus because he's explaining to you what God is like because he is God in the flesh. So where do you look if you want to find God? Jesus makes God known. Where do you look? I would suggest beginning in two places. First, look in a manger in Bethlehem where God became flesh, where God became human. Second, look to a hill outside Jerusalem where the word died for the sins of humanity. Look to a manger, look to a hill. You'll begin to know who God really is and where he really hangs out. You'll begin to know and understand and receive and believe in grace and truth. So we receive grace and truth. That's what we must do. Grace and truth is offered to us in Christ. We receive grace and truth. And as we do that, something happens in our hearts. So that our hearts are changed, revolutionized, so that we want to do something with this grace and truth that we have received. What do we do then? We offer grace and truth. We offer grace and truth. And it, you cannot separate grace and truth, as some want to do. Some, in, in the name of, of righteousness, they emphasize truth, but they screen out grace. Some, in the name of love, they emphasize grace, but they screen out truth. But if you do that, you get half of Jesus, right? Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. You can't Divide Jesus. Who wants half of Jesus? He's full of both grace and truth. A few years ago, the elders came up with a statement on marriage and sexuality. And uh, we thought a lot, we prayed a, a lot about this, and we tried to reflect what the Bible teaches about grace and truth on this matter. Let me read the statement for you. We believe that marriage is ordained by God to be a union of one man and one woman and that God intends sexual intimacy to be enjoyed exclusively within that relationship. At PBC, we strive to create an environment where everyone, including those who are attracted to people of the same sex, is empowered to follow Jesus while observing our convictions regarding marriage and sexuality. We envision a spiritual family where all people can find belonging, where encountering the radical love of God leads them to follow Jesus, where they are able to grow in holiness while being confident of their great worth, and where transparency about orientation and ongoing experience creates enhanced possibilities to serve God. Now, I think if you read that carefully, you will see grace and truth in every sentence, at least as we understand what the scriptures teach. Now, we cannot begin to change the biblical definitions of sin the way some are doing in our world. The Bible is very clear on a lot of things. It's not clear on some things, but it's clear on a lot of things. 
And we at PBC think this is a clear statement that clearly reflects what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality. So what happens when you change the biblical definitions of sin to make things easier for people, you take away grace. Because grace is not God's favor in the face of righteousness. Grace is God's favor in the face of sin. So you can't change the definitions of sin unless you want to get rid of grace. Oh, we don't need God's grace here because this isn't sin at all. We don't, we don't struggle with this because it's not a struggle at all according to what we think. No, you have to understand here's what the truth is, here's what sin is, and now if I understand what sin is and I have this desire to sin and maybe I go ahead and actually sin, I can find God's grace. I can cry out to God. And that's what we don't want to take away from ourselves or from people is the propensity and the possibility to, in your struggle, cry out to Christ and to find Christ in the struggle. My friends, it is not about having your desires met because your deepest desire is your desire for Christ, whether you know it or not. And if we say, well, the most important thing is that my desire for sexual and emotional intimacy be met regardless of whether, you know, it's a man or a woman or inside or marriage or outside of marriage, if that's the greatest thing, then you're taking away the opportunity for grace. You're taking the opportunity, you're taking the struggle away. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we all struggle against sin. And indeed, we struggle, we must struggle struggle against sin and struggle for love and compassion and courage and grace and all those great things, but there is a struggle against sin. Please do not take the struggle away because the struggle is an important aspect of crying out to and finding Christ, and that's the most important thing. That is what we need. We need Christ. And if you got truth, that says, here's what sin is, and you've got grace that says, here's God's favor, what do you do? You find God, you find Christ, you find forgiveness, you find love. You may struggle forever. No, I take that back. If you believe in Jesus, you won't struggle forever. You may struggle for the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. Do you know what the struggle is going to be worth then when there is no more struggle and you see Jesus face to face? My goodness, we sacrifice so much good stuff to make it easier. Offer grace and truth. Offer grace and truth. There was a, a man in Jesus' day. He lived in Jericho. And he wanted to see Jesus. He heard that Jesus was coming to town, but there were two problems. Number one, he was short, and there was a big crowd. Number two, he was a tax collector, and no one wanted to really see or be seen by tax collectors. So he's got a problem. Jesus is coming to town, there's a big crowd, he's a tax collector, what's he gonna do? He decides, okay, here I got the solution to this problem. I'm gonna run on ahead, and I'm gonna climb up the sycamore tree and maybe I'll get a glimpse of Jesus. And indeed, Jesus is walking by, and then something strange happens. He sees the tax collector, 
and he doesn't walk on by. That's what everyone else would do. Tax collector, walk on by. What does Jesus do? What does the word do? He looks up and he sees the man in the tree. And he says in so many words, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there in that tree? Sorry. Hurry on down because I am coming to your house. My friends, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What does that mean? What does Christmas mean? What does Christmas mean? It means this. God is coming to your house today. Well, we're going to sing a song now. We've seen the Father, the Son, we've seen the Spirit. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. We've seen Jesus, the Word, with God, dwelling among us. We've seen Jesus sending the Spirit to us to dwell among us. So we praise the Father, we praise the Son, we praise the Spirit, three in one.